welcome everyone to part six of the Nolan Countdown miniseries. On this week's episode, we'll be revisiting what some people, maybe even a person or two on this podcast, refer to as the greatest superhero movie of all time, Christopher Nolan's 2008 sequel to Batman Begins, The Dark Knight. Before we get to that, however, with me today, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey, and our Countdown series guest, Jay Habib. Guys, how are you all doing? Has your hair grown so much now that it's past the point of no return? How are you guys feeling? You you asked that, and yet I got a haircut yesterday, actually. So I, I did venture out um, yesterday and, and brave sport clips. I had to like get onto the app right as the store opened and hit the thing, and then I still had to wait 51 minutes uh, just because that's how high the demand is right now. But uh, I, I got it, and uh, I'm, I'm in good shape for a while now. So, yeah, I'm happy to be here. I mean, Tenet, we thought this week was going to be the week that it would get pushed, and it hasn't happened yet. So maybe, just maybe, uh, we're going to have this movie in theaters in July, and we'll actually get to release these episodes on time. So we'll see. Yeah, it's an absolutely wild scenario to think that, it hasn't been pushed yet with everything else that's being moved around, but it's it's a bold swing by Warner Brothers. It's nice to know that this movie is is staying put for now. I'm still skeptical. I think that it's probably going to yeah. get pushed in, in the next few weeks, even though they said they were going to have decided by this week. Uh, yeah, but Scott, you're also a lucky one getting a haircut or an unlucky one, depending on how you look at it with with Tennessee having reopened completely. I I think the last couple of weeks I've, I've been pushed over the edge uh, of my unruly hair. I wear a hat almost every day at this point. Yeah, I was at that point and I was like, do I really want to be the person because I've been very critical of people going out and everything. Like, do I really want to be the person who's like, I put my hair above, you know, people's lives or stuff like that. But I, you know, you wear a mask. They, they make you wear a mask in there. Yeah. All of the barbers obviously were wearing a mask. They practice, we're practicing safe social distancing. So I'm like, I got to be reasonable about this to some degree. So it was, it was fine. Yeah. Jay, how are you doing? My hair is long and unruly um, and it's driving me up a wall, but yeah. well, that's that, the contrast of living in Massachusetts and New York versus Tennessee right now, probably. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine. Sure. No, I'm, I'm good. You know, uh, it, it's nice to see my, my hair getting back to the length it was back in college when I didn't have to worry about looking professional. So it's a good time. Yeah, those were the days. I remember those days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, uh, I won't delay us any longer. Why don't we jump right into a discussion that I know I've been dying to have ever since we decided we were doing a Nolan miniseries uh, <laughs> back of late last year, right? As we were wrapping up the Star Wars series. And that is, of course, a discussion of The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight picks up shortly after the events at the end of its predecessor, Batman Begins, and largely follows a trio of key characters Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne as he navigates the evolution of his identity as the vigilante Batman and tries to guide Gotham to become a place that no longer needs Batman. Heath Ledger's Joker as he rises to power in Gotham City's underworld to become Gotham's most notorious villain as well as the chaotic archenemy of Batman. And finally, Aaron Eckhart's Harvey Dent, who is Gotham City's district attorney and proverbial white knight that Batman can never be. This trio becomes become the three key players in the war for Gotham's soul that the Joker seems hell-bent on waging against Batman. As Dent becomes the Joker's target, to prove that even the best that Gotham has to offer can be brought down to his level, it takes the combined forces of Bale's Batman, Morgan Freeman's Lucius Fox, Gary Oldman's Jim Gordon, Maggie Gyllenhaal's Rachel Dawes, and Michael Caine's Alfred to prove that Gotham is not as hopeless and lost as the Joker seems to think. But even then, their combined efforts 
may not be enough. Rich with characters, performances, themes, innovative technical production, and more, The Dark Knight released a critical and commercial acclaim in the summer of 2008, generating more than $1 billion at the global box office and scoring eight Academy Award nominations and two wins in 2009, including a posthumous win for Heath Ledger's now infamous performance as the Joker. To many, The Dark Knight is a high watermark in the gold standard for comic book movies that film franchises like the MCU and certainly the DCEU have aspired to. But for our purposes today, it's simply Christopher Nolan's sixth film. I told you both in our group chat before this episode that I was going to do my best to guide our discussion and not let us, or maybe just me in particular, descend into unintelligible rambling about how absolutely amazing this film is. So with that light primer obviously joking, for The Dark Knight. I want to know what both of your expectations were coming into this rewatch. Scott, we'll start with you first. Yeah, Scott, I watched this movie a lot um, of, of Nolan's movies, along with Memento, I guess. But, uh, you know, again, Memento is kind of a dark watch. So this, to me, is the one that I, I rewatched the most. I do consider it, I did, I mean, I did going into the movie, consider it to be one of my favorite movies. I do try to watch it every few months and so yeah i mean this was this was one as opposed to many of the others that we've talked about so far that was relatively fresh for me i don't know how long it had been since i watched it before i watched it a couple weeks ago but like i said i never go that long without uh, watching it again just because it's amazing like you said jay what about you expectations were sky high um but i think we're all in agreement you know we about how we feel about this movie and you know it had it had been a while since my last rewatch but you know i i didn't expect much to change uh you know i always love this movie yeah so for me i think the last i i usually get around to it every year it'd been i think a little bit over a year since the last time i'd watched it and guys like i, I won't hide the able like this is my favorite movie of all time it was before i came into i came into it i mean about this time last week when i was watching it and so my expectations we're about as high as you can get. You know, it, it's it's it can't go higher than one of one of, if not your favorite movie of all time. So to say that my expectations were as high as they could be uh, is fair to say. And if we're changing gears to our general impressions, guys, this movie never disappoints me. I I watch this movie every year. My expectations are always as high uh, as they can be for this film, and just something about it just never gets old. I mean, I'm not watching it every week. Maybe I'd get tired of it. I was watching it every week, but. I watch it regularly enough to, to that I am surprised and impressed and it speaks to how I feel about the movie that um, my general impressions is that this movie never never gets old, never hold, always holds up. And the performances across the board, uh, particularly Christian Bale in that lead role as Batman, Heath Ledger, um, maybe the most iconic villain performance of all time, if not one, at least one of the most iconic performances of all time. It's just it's it's an unforgettable performance, not just for how well the character is written and how well the character is performed, but how much chemistry may be a weird word to use these two characters of Batman and Joker have in their really warped and demented and, and sick way uh, that, that Gotham and the Dark Knight kind of in, in, inspires. And for all those reasons, it, you have, I mean, Chris Nolan just has so much to work with. It's an, I think it's an incredible adaptation of several different comics in terms of you, know, you have the, it's not an origin story, but this rise to power of Joker while also telling this really kind of fulsome arc of, of Harvey Dent rising to power on the other side uh, of of Gotham's underworld and, and you know, in, in the bright light of day in Gotham, but then also falling from grace. And then I think this war that you see between Batman and maybe throw in Jim Gordon as well 
in there uh, with the Joker and this war for Gotham solos, the way that Joker describes it. I think it it's just one of the most interesting, uh, I guess, narrative decisions. If you think about going into a movie, because it, as much as Batman Begins was about as was an origin story and a story for for Batman proper and Christian Bale's version of Batman, it, it feels like the movie has evolved strangely from being a movie about Batman to being a movie really a lot about Gotham more than anything in the dark Knight, I think that's one of the most fascinating uh, ways that this movie kind of subverts the norm for what might've been superhero films beforehand. I mean, thinking about X-Men movies, Spider-Man movies, other Batman movies, but also movies since then too. I don't think any movie has really captured the way it tells oddly its story about a city rather than just about an individual uh, better than, than the dark Knight has. And so those are just some of my initial high level thoughts, but uh, I want to shut up before I do descend into that unintelligible rambling that I was talking about. Scott, what did you think of this film? What were your general impressions given your expectations? Yeah. I mean, look, last time when we talked about the prestige, uh, when we had, you know, we had a spirited discussion about the prestige last time. Um, and I, I prefaced everything by saying this was, you know, I thought that this was a good movie. Um, because I then wanted to go into some of my critiques about the movie. So this time I want to preface this review by saying that I think that the Dark Knight, any time the legal process is involved in the Dark Knight, yeah. it's ridiculous. Um, th their understanding of the legal process in this film. Uh, I mean, look, I don't think you have to have just graduated from law school like I have to see that um, they're... They're, they're on the, the edges of credulity here with, with some of these scenes. Like, first of all, why is Rachel Dawes, the assistant DA, the one interrogating the Joker while he is like in detention uh, after, after he's been arrested? Like that would never happen. Um, and of course the, the courtroom scene, which I like, I think that there's a reason for it that we'll talk about. I, I don't, I don't think Nolan is like, I think he has a purpose behind why this scene is in there, but it is just kind of ridiculous. The guy pulling the gun on the witness stand, Harvey Dent, like, you know, disarming him, the whole crowd cheering. Again, I, I think there's a reason for it, but that doesn't mean I, I'm not like when I watch it. But with that being said, this is still one of my favorite movies. Um, it's not, I don't think it's quite in my top 10, but it's really close. Um, and it, yeah, for, for a lot of the reasons you said, Scott, I think it is so much more than a superhero movie, obviously. Like, we'll, we'll have the discussion about, is it even right to, to call it a superhero movie? Or at least, what, what does it mean for the genre or how we understand the genre of superhero and comic book movies going forward after this and, and the movies we got in the decade following this movie? But everything just comes together so well. And I, I mean, I, I want to go back to the script, right? Because I talked about that with Batman Begins. I think that that's what's, what makes these movies tick, right? I mean, obviously the performances are incredible. The action sequences are staged really well, but these things don't work without a script. They, they come off like DCEU movies and what Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan and, and the writers here are able to do is give this thing a real psychological heft that doesn't feel cheesy or forced or anything like that it just it feels right for the gotham city and the create and the characters that they have created um to have this sort of moral heft um in what is the story about costumed people fighting each other right i mean that's it's kind of yes the the burton batman films were dark but this is this is even kind of a new frontier i think what what Nolan was doing here, especially in the time period, right? Because the, as you mentioned, you know, the, the superhero movies that we were getting were more like, you know, whiz bang, like the X-Men movies and 
Raimi's first two Spider-Man movies, which are great, but um, this this was something different. And I don't know. I mean, there's so much that I like about it, and I think that what I do like about it the most is kind of like I'm saying there. This is kind of a morality play above all, right? This is kind of an interrogation on what it means to be a superhero. What is a superhero supposed to represent? What is a hero? This take away the super part. What is a hero supposed to represent for um, a community and how far is too far, uh, you know, when it comes to protecting the greater good, um, what is, what does that even mean? The greater good, right? Um, there's, there's some, you know, all of these questions I think are posed and, and answered in impressive fashion within the dark Knight. So, I mean, I'm excited to talk about it more, but yeah, this movie hasn't lost any of its luster in the last 12 years. It is still the high watermark for all superhero comic book films, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's it's such an interesting point to talk about. Uh, there's layers of of ability to kind of process and enjoy and consume this film. You, it's perfectly fine if you walk, you know. And I'm sure when I saw this in theaters back in 2008, I I had this experience. I I walked in, I watched what was there on the surface level, and and didn't really and probably engage much much more deeply than this battle for Gotham's soul between Batman and Joker. Really cool action scenes. Some you know fantastic visual effects, uh, both practical and I guess both practical and CG. And I was just gonna say, and that's totally fine, right? Like I right. think the movie works incredibly well just as a entertaining action spectacle, right? That's that's some of the the beauty of it is that it can function as a traditional superhero movie if you want it to be that. But you know, if you want something deeper, you can also find that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is one of the things that makes it such a special entry is that there is you can come to it however you are. And I think you can get a lot out of it and a lot of enjoyment at many levels. I'll let you go ahead and jump in here. I, I think what you said just now, actually, that last line, it sums it up perfectly for me in that, you know, I I have visited and revisited this movie so many times, you know, since 2008. And, you know, every time, you know, it's not like too dramatic or whatever but you know you're like a slightly different person especially you know as the years go by and you know i found that you know it, it always really does live up and you know gives me something new to think about um you know something like as simple on the surface as you know okay you know what i was wrong christian bale is the best batman um but you know some perhaps uh heavier themes like what it means to be a superhero and what it means to endure and you know, this, this movie, dare I even say, like, you know, exceeded my expectations. I think it had been a little bit too long since my last uh, rewatch. And I, you know, might have even been a little bit nervous about it. Uh, like, <laughs> oh, like, you know, I don't know. You know, I, I think I've seen Spider-Verse like three times since the last time I watched it. And that's probably the only other superhero movie that I hold like this high. But I, I finished this and I was like, nope, this is my favorite superhero movie of all time. How dare um, you slight Endgame. Get out of here. It's it, it's that's an experience. Better, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But um, <laughs> yeah, no this 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 movie lives up. Uh, it gives me something new. I feel like I notice something new every time I watch it. That you know, Nolan probably did super intentionally, and I'm like, oh, like, and it's uh, it's a real treat. Yeah, it, this really does is a film that somehow feels like it grows with you and evolves with you over time. Both you know, not not just in how deep you're able to engage with the film, but also just different states that you're in in your life and different experiences that you had. I think that you can see something different in this film, depending on where you're at. And, and, you know, with those high level impressions, I think it's probably just worth kind of jumping into the first topic of conversation that I want to have. And that's before we get to any of the, 
the plot elements or the characters or the acting and that and that is the technical aspects because this did win and the oscar for best sound editing uh the, the all these technical aspects here i think it's fair to say are really strong i don't actually know exactly which all the other categories it was nominated in other than the two that it won because it was nominated for eight total but uh if i had to take a guess i'd imagine most a lot of them were technical pieces because there's some really incredible stuff going on here whether it's the cinematography from wally fister the score from uh hans zimmer and i believe he he collaborated with uh james newton howard yeah. yeah james newton howard on this as well for certain parts of it but guys from a technical perspective here and setting aside kind of the action set pieces because i will we will talk about those later but what were your thoughts on on the different components especially i think at least i mentioned in batman begins that i thought some of the technical aspects were, were really strong but for me I, I think that it evolved even further here and it's a much more complete mixture or sampling of, of different styles and techniques that i think we've seen in a lot of other nolan films yeah i mean i am on record as saying that this is like in my top two or three movie scores of all time depending on the day they they stack out differently but yeah it's it's right up there i listen to it all the time and i think that what i like about it right because and we'll talk about sort of the other extreme of this i think next week with uh with inception or ne next time with inception um and we're fighting words that you're, for you're that toward but there is restraint in his score here in the dark night because I like if you watched it, I mean, to sort of get into it, if you watch that long car chase sequence uh, that happens in Gotham, there's almost no music that happens in that entire sequence. He's just letting the like sounds of the cars, the, you know, streets of Gotham and everything like add to the atmosphere of that scene, which is perfect. Right. He's not um, like telling you how to feel about it or like being like, let's have some big bombastic music here so that you, uh, you know, just can really sense how big and important this moment is because we don't need that, right? We're we're not, um, you know, we're not dummies. Um, and but but he, he like he measures it really well, right? Because like they're under the bridge, they're going under the bridge. We have no music, and then they come out and there's like a brief respite where the chase stops and the music picks back up a little bit and it's kind of building a little bit. And there's the str there's those strings like, hey, something's about to happen. And then when Batman comes in, like it's it stops again and again. The the scene just starts playing out as isn't i mean i think it, i think it's brilliant the way that um it's executed and i mean he knows the moments too right to really lean into it as well and i mean maybe the best example is at the ending of the movie right like you, you will not find a more stirring into a film than with gordon's not only gordon's final monologue but the the fact that this is a point where zimmer's music builds to a crescendo um and it's just epic. I mean, that's really the only word for it is, is just epic. And so that is that obviously is one that stands out to me. But I mean, I think the and, and amazingly enough, I don't think that the score was nominated for an Oscar, but um, I, you can check me on that. But um, the cinematography is also really strong, obviously, like they just know how to shoot against the dark sky really well. Right. Like the the shots of joker like at times like when he's on the building and like his hair going crazy and stuff and in, in the wind against that dark background are just like so striking i mean those are those are paintings right there in and of themselves and so um like wally fister is you know and, and nolan really sort of changed the game i mean you can go back to, to uh insomnia which i think is the first movie that they worked on together and just see the way that they were experimenting uh with things at that time and i think this is just sort of them at the height of their powers here for sure yeah, I mean, I talked last week how that so because because the Prestige was nominated for for best cinematography, 
uh, this was as well. This film was as well. I didn't, and I, and I openly was saying like, I didn't really understand. I mean, like it was good. I didn't really understand why it had been nominated, but this one, when I'm, you know, referencing what I was saying just before this and talking about how this feels like a, a, a perfect sort of blend of all these things that they've been sampling and trying over three, four films. I think it all comes together in the, in the dark night. And maybe there's not that one scene that hits you over the head so strongly with the cinematography. There's no 10 minute, one one shot that that uh, you get to experience over the course of the film, but the way that that the camera immerses you and and, and really kind of gets you into these really intimate moments, and in, both between you know characters in a more traditional sense, but also intimate moments between someone like a Batman and and, and Joker, and how you know one of the scenes that I think is really striking is when you had like towards the end of the film, Batman's captured Joker, they're on top of the building, and they're having this conversation to see basically whether or not uh, these two ships out in, in the harbor are going to blow each other up. And you have this scene that has Christian Bale's Batman sort of upright, but then Heath Ledger's Joker swinging upside down. And I think the camera work in that scene is is pretty spectacular, if I had to point to one moment. But I did look up the other Academy Awards it was nominated for. Almost all of them were technical. Best Art Direction, which is uh, not a category that exists anymore. I think it's production design maybe now. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, about that but best yeah. art direction cinematography makeup film editing uh sound mixing at one sound editing and best visual effects so yeah almost all technical pieces here jay why don't you get in here and have your say about whether it's the cinematography whether it's the score whether it's something else what do you think of the technical aspects no it's all it's all the above um and you you really hit on you know, some of my favorite moments and or scenes um you know in that you know when they're having the conversation about you know whether the boats are going to blow up or not um you know, I guess to Scott Harvey to, you know, make one of your points, that's one of those moments where, you know, there's not really a lot of like music going on and you're kind of you know, sitting on the edge of it and then, you know, it'll pick back up again later. Um, you know, Hans Zimmer really does know, you know, when to kind of lean into it and when to not. Um, and I will also go on record and say this is one of my three favorite scores, uh, movie scores of all time. Um, and, you know, I, I listen to it quite regularly too uh, for you know, different occasions, whether it's, you know, needing to get through some work or just for fun or during a workout. Like, you know, I, I think it, you know, the, the intensity, like is, you know, it's just there and he brings it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like you said, you know, they're, they're very good at shooting against the dark. I feel like, you know, with whether it's the car chase or the fight uh, at the Pruitt building at the end, you know, they're like, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm a complete, I don't know anything about anything to me, you know, imagining shooting things like that, you know, would be incredibly difficult, but you know, it, it, it comes through so clearly, you know, despite being so dark. It's it's awesome. Yeah, and this film, I think, is known maybe for how long it, it, its production was in Chicago. I think it was in Chicago for alone for like 13 weeks or something like that, uh, doing all the different uh, f- filming that they were doing there. And that doesn't include any of the stage filming that they did in London uh, on top of that. So a lot of filming and shooting that was going on in, in this film. And I think that you're right. They I mean, Nolan's imagination is incredible. You know, in some ways, this is this is one that kind of stretches the sense of traditional imagination. And next week, you know, we're going to get one that stretches the, stretches imagination. Period. I think. I think in terms of the way that it shoots and decides to display its art. I'm I'm glad we're all agreed about about the score. I was actually I've been building the uh, 1989 Batmobile Lego set recently in quarantine uh, with my girlfriend, and and I have required that we put on 
uh, different Batman scores while doing this. And and I can say that Hans Zimmer's score has has featured more regularly than any of the other Batman scores. I'll, I'll, Make I'll sure when you're way. finishing it to have like the like a dog chasing cars or one of the like yeah. really epic tracks so that you uh, you really feel accomplished in your past. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty big Lego set. It's over 3,000 pieces, so it, it is an accomplishment when, when we do finish it. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm glad we're all in agreement on the, on the score. We'll save our, our contest next week about who who is right about the Inception the Inception score. But for, uh, for now, we will move on past that and, and talk about uh, some other amazing pe- parts of this film, and that is the, the acting and the performances. You know, there are a lot of returning characters in this film. In fact, most of them are returning. I think two of the... Really, only two, the only two major characters that are really new to this film are Heath Ledger's Joker and uh, Aaron Eckhart's Harvey Dent. But before we get to them, I do want to start with Christian Bale. I I think all three of us even were very uh pray you know very praiseworthy of his performance in Batman Begins. And on this revisit, because it had been a long time since I'd seen Batman Begins. And I was thinking, wow, you know, he's even better than I remember in the first start. I mean, I, I thought that he really hit a high point in, in the dark night, but maybe, maybe he was there already when it comes to Batman begins. And then I rewatched this and I realized that no, no, he still hit the high in, in the dark night because, you know, he, I guess maybe he had that experience in the first film. He'd worked on that character for several years and he'd been working, ex- I think almost exclusively with Nolan in that time too, with the prestige. I'm not sure if he was doing any other projects and the machinist was even before Batman begins. So I'm not sure if he had any, any other major projects before then, but he'd clearly had been refining this character. And then I think the bail, that you get as Batman here in the Dark Knight is just really something special. I think I'd always, I think really before the past couple of years, thought of Christian Bale as more of this, you know, really great Batman, but really just a really great Batman and not really thinking him too much as this kind of prestige actor who might be, you know, one of the best living actors. And I think the more that I revisit some of those older movies and pair it with some of the things that he's done, you know, even as much of a fan of I wasn't a vice, him still being great in vice him being great in, in Ford versus Ferrari last year as Ken Miles. I think the Dark Knight and, and and the Batman Begins and the Prestige have made me just really appreciate even more that maybe he has been one of the best actors we've had for a really long time, uh, and none and in none more instances I think that is the case here with his performance in the Dark Knight in particular. Guys, what did you think of Bale's performance and uh, any differences that you found or saw from this performance that was an evolution maybe of his performance in the Batman Begins? Yeah. So so what I'll say is that I think that what's interesting about this performance and what again maybe takes it to another level is that uh and even in batman begins is like right we have that common theme of um you know in this movie right the the, the whole narrative thread is that is that line that that harvey said you you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain and we kind of see that playing out in in the Bruce Wayne and Batman characters for sure, and because because like in the first movie, right, Bruce Wayne and Batman were sort of these distinct personalities. They he was still sort of trying to figure out how to balance both lives, but you know you get the sense in this movie that he's figured it out to some extent, and sort of the consequences of that are that he like the the cockiness of Bruce Wayne has started to sort of bleed into who he is as Batman as well, right? He feels that he is invincible in a way and that he can go out and, and you know, save Gotham and that his his wounds that he may incur are just wounds, right? They're not going to have any lasting effect on him. And I think what, we'll talk about the Joker more, but what makes him a, such, an, such an effective villain is he finds the vulnerability that, that Bruce and Batman still have. But I, it's interesting, right, because there's sort of the question of, 
you know, Bruce, the, the cocky Bruce is kind of not really the real Bruce, it seems. Like, that just seems like sort of the, the persona he's putting on as the, you know, bigwig CEO of Wayne Enterprises. But the, the, the movie seems to kind of suggest that, hey, at some point, if you keep pretending to be this person, if you keep being this Bruce Wayne, that's who you are, right? You, you, you can't just rely on, you know, talking about sort of his relationship with Rachel in a way, how she she believes that there is a different Bruce inside of him. And, and maybe there is, right, the, the person that she loves. But at some point, right, if you keep suppressing that side of you, you're going to become the villain, so to speak. Right? You're going to become this cocky Bruce who R Rachel just isn't able to love. And, you know, that that affects who he is as, as Batman as well. Um, because that that overconfidence can can affect um, you know him and his his task, but I think that Bale all of this to say that I think Bale portrays all of these emotions really well, um, and he he again he he shows how uh, Bruce and Batman are starting starting to sort of become one in a way, um, and I you know I can't, I can't say anything better about the performance. I think it's it is one of the best. Um, superhero performances in, in, in a superhero movie and uh, like I, I have come to appreciate it more over the years and this just uh, further cemented that uh, that I think he just really understands this character and what this character's journey in this particular movie is as well yeah I think one of the one of the th one of the realities of this performance is that you almost need Batman Begins to fully appreciate what Christian Bale is doing because in Batman Begins you have he has the singular focus of it is my responsibility to avenge my parents death and root out crime in Gotham that is why I have to become the Batman and do these things uh, that no one else is either willing or just capable of doing and in the dark night you you've gotten to a point where all right, he kind of set out, like, what he set out to do, he's kind of done. I mean, at least in the first half hour, like, 45 minutes, we have the mob. Like, they're taken care of. They, it, you know, look, they'll, they'll trickle back out onto the street, sure, here and there. But 80, 90% of what he set out to do is done. And, and now you have this sort of entirely new threat, this entirely new agent of chaos that comes onto the scene in the form of the Joker. And when you talk, you have that conversation early on in the movie with Alfred about what are Batman's limits and, and, you know, Batman has no limits. Uh, he can't have any limits. He has to be something that can take on anything and do anything to, to, to defeat the, you know, these, these, uh, evil beings, these, these villains of Gotham that are, that are tearing the city down. And I think one of the most fascinating parts of the film is this emotional journey of, you know, Christian Bale knowing or having originally set out to be Batman to do the, the you know these things to rid Gotham of, of its of its crime, but then over halfway through the film realized that Batman is not the thing that can do that, and he doesn't really want that life anyway because in reality what he wants is to create a city that doesn't need him so that he can retire the cow and be with Rachel. And I think the emotional journey that he goes on over the course of that film, to your point, Scott, is just really hitting every single note there and is believable because the Bruce Wayne, like you said, the cocky Bruce in the beginning that has, you know, Batman has no limits uh, by the end of the film. You know, he, the, the Joker has pushed him up to, if not over the edge at certain points. And it, and it takes the support of people like Alfred, people like Lucius, people like Gordon to be able to really kind of pull him back from being over the edge. Jay, what did you think about Christian Bale's performance? 
Christian Bale is the best Batman. Um, yeah. I just need to say that one more time. I yeah, I, I, I will <laughs> say I'll raise my hand and say I I've waffled in, of the over the last few years about Ben Affleck maybe being underrated as a Batman. Val Kilmer and, though. And, yeah, well, shut up. Um, <laughs> uh, um no, and I will say ben Affleck, ben Affleck is a is a good Batman, but I mean Christian Bale's the goat. So yes, Go no, and that's that, that's why I need to say this. The only acceptable yeah. answers now are Christian Bale and Kevin Conroy. Um. I think and, Michael Keaton is an acceptable answer. I do, but no, you're right, I have you're spoken. Right. So have I. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, I think you guys hit on it, you know, really well in that, you know, Bale really does capture, you know, the vulnerability of Batman. And we really do get to see him, you know, go through this journey and kind of, you know, become the person that, you know, he's pretending to be more so than the person we thought he was. Um, you know, uh, if I may even say, you know, it's not who you are underneath, right? But what you do that kind of, you know, not just defines you, but I guess, you know, shapes you. I've heard that somewhere before. Right? Um, I, I think those are the words you were looking for earlier. <laughs> and, you know, we we really get that with him. And I think, you know, I, I think in this movie, even more so than the last one, much more so than the last one, you know, when he's, especially like using the bat voice, like, you know, there, there are still just moments in the film that I'm like, you know what, like, I I, I, I the voice, you know, as a concept is still just a little bit ridiculous, but like, I, like, I, I understand you, you know, Batman or Bruce Wayne, you know, however you want to look at it, you know, like I, you know, when he's having the conversation with the Joker and, you know, there won't be any fireworks. Like, again, that it just, it, just, it should sound super silly to me and it doesn't. And, you yeah. know, the, the ending uh, scene between, you know, him, Harvey and Gordon again, you know, like, you know, it, I to me, like you know, it, I I don't even think of like the voice as like a you know this like weird raspy you know secret identity concealer. Like to me, you know, like it. it well, the voice is auto tuned in this movie. It's not it's not Bale doing the voice in this film. It's it, they auto tune it in post. It is in the first film. It was his raspy voice. He like he did the voice himself, but and it's a little no, different. In this yeah, one. and that you know that change, I, I think you know really does help. But yeah. all in all, you know he he still just I feel like does a great job with it all um you know i i don't i don't think you know even you know, just to you know bring affleck back into the conversation you know looking at like him playing a 20-year grizzled batman I, I don't think captures you know the apex of what it means to be pushed to your limits you know the way this you know christian bale one year of being batman does uh you know in realizing just what the joker is capable of and what he has to do yeah yeah i mean we'll see what our pats has to bring to the table and a little of over course, a year, but as but, of now, uh, yeah, Christian Bale, best Batman. Yeah, going from best Batman to I, I mean, I'm I'm okay with saying that the best Joker in, in Heath Ledger, guys. Uh, I mean, one of the most iconic performances. I, I think if you just asked me what's the most memorable performance in a in a in a superhero movie, period, full stop, superhero villain doesn't matter. I think it'd be the Joker because this character is so out there so off the wall even for a comic book character like the joker is who is already a out there off the wall type of character i mean jack nicholson's performance from the you know 1989 batman is iconic in its own right but what heath ledger and chris nolan david s goyer jonathan nolan whoever you want to say kind of uh, really kind of came together to imagine and to realize is just something altogether different and I think this is the part of the movie where Scott, I think you were talking about this earlier. Maybe it was you, Jay. I'm not sure. But when you talk about injecting a dark element into the film, 
I mean, Batman Begins is visually dark, obviously, and then there's a lot of dark stuff going on with hallucinogens and things like that. But I think it's a real it's a really different flavor of dark when you have a character like the Joker come onto the scene and you have a performance like Heath Ledger is able to give that. I mean, it's, it, it seems unfair to call it deranged because that doesn't do it justice. How how absolutely wild the character is. And I was I was reading a bunch of articles from back in uh, and interviews of primarily of Gary Oldman, who was talking about production on the film and talking about how uh, he was freaked out by what Heath Ledger was doing on set because uh, I mean, no one had told him that that was going to be what Heath Ledger was going to be doing. And I can't even imagine like full makeup because most of that makeup is, is not, I, I can't, I think most of the makeup here is not prosthetics. So it's like actually directly applied makeup uh, to, to Heath Ledger. And you can tell too. I mean, you can, you can kind of see that for sure. Yeah. And that's actually what they, I mean, one of the reasons why it got nominated, but somehow didn't win. I need to go see what won in 2009 for best makeup that this didn't win. But, um, yeah, anyway, I just think that, that the whole the, it's like the holistic package, right? It's it's this character that they visually realize on the screen combined with I mean an out of this world performance by Heath Ledger that really just jumps off the screen and makes it so memorable. Guys, anything specific that you want to call out about this character, about this performance of Heath Ledger? Uh, Jay, this time we'll start with you first. Yeah, I mean it you know, he he is so over the top, but like it all just works, you know, in a way that like you know, certain other attempts of making the Joker over the top, you know, have not, you know, uh, you know, the way this one, you know, when he's like, uh, you know, just the, the way he like, I, I don't want to like try to recreate the sounds he makes. Right. But the way he kind of just like, you know, loses it a little bit and just like, you know, like flubs his lips and it's just like shrieking a little and, you know, it, like it, it, it should feel so over the top. It should feel like goofy almost, but like it, it you know, it, it, it's terrifying, you know, like you, at least to me, you know, like it, re- it really all like sticks with me, you know, the, the laugh, the mannerisms, even, you know, that shot of him, you know, clapping uh, for Gordon being named commissioner in prison, you know, like all, all these little things, you know, should just feel a little like silly, but, you know, he, he plays it so convincingly, uh, you know, a, another moment. And I, I, I've read stories on how this was like kind of an accident on how this all came up, but when the hospital's being blown up and, you know, he kind of looks back and just shrugs, like apparently that was because the explosion actually literally like, did not happen on yeah. cue. Um, they only had one shot at that because that's an actual factory they're blowing up. Right. Uh, so they had to get it right the first time. Yeah. And again, you know, like he, you know, it, it's just a little shrug and like, you know, knowing like it wasn't supposed to be there, kind of like whatever, but like it all, again, like it all just works. Yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, he, he play, I, again, I won't use the word deranged because I, I don't think it does it justice either, but the way he plays this, you know, Okay, I guess I have to say a deranged person, you know, like it it just it works so the, well. The, the most bizarrely one-dimensional villain you'll ever see, but it it works, I guess, maybe because it's it's so strange in its one-dimensionality, maybe. I don't know. Scott, what do you think? Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know that I would say that it's it's one-dimensional, but I, what what I would say overall, I think, about this performance is this is really the first time and maybe the only time. I mean, maybe you could say Joker, the most recent Joker to some extent also did this, but where you really get a sense that Joker is not some super villain, right? He is a guy in makeup, right? And that's that's where the, the you know, actual makeup and everything helps with that too. Y- you really get the sense that there is a human being underneath all of these, uh, uh, you know, trappings, the, the costumes, the makeup and everything. 
there's there's a guy there and yeah okay he's deranged for sure like for sure i think that that's that's fair to say but he's not insane right like he knows exactly what he's doing he's actually a, a very intelligent supervillain, and that and that is why i think it works that's why i think there's multiple dimensions to him right because there is the, the clown, the guy that everyone else sees and is like, oh, this guy's insane or whatever. But no, he's actually executing a plan to some extent, right? Like part of it is that he doesn't have a plan, right? He he doesn't have an end game of like, I'm going to destroy Gotham City or whatever, like every other supervillain wants to do. He is just, I want to just make, you know what happened. Um, and, and so like that, I think makes him interesting as a villain because he, he knows exactly how to do that, right? He... He knows that Batman's vulnerability is that he won't kill anyone, right? And like that, this is where I think the inter an interrogation on superhero movies as a whole happens, right? Because Batman's not the only one who's like that. Superman's like that. A lot of other superhero uh, superheroes out there just like won't kill anyone. And and what what Joker um, sort of the the premise of what he's doing in this movie is kind of like he's making you break it, your one rule, right? In terms of what he is doing to Batman, he's pushing him to that point where it's like you have to kill me if you want to do what you claim that you are doing right to protect gotham city like to to you know to help the greater good you have to do the one thing that you cannot do right he, he makes him uh make this decision that he hasn't had to make before and the ways in which he does that again are very clever very intelligent and so i think there's that side to the joker that we haven't really seen before that makes this work so well and i mean ledger brings everything to the performance, not just the dark side, but he, he's still like, he's still a joker, right? He's still uh, droll. He has a sense of humor. Like it's maybe sometimes you wish you weren't laughing, but you kind of do just have to chuckle at some of, uh, you know, his, his lines and witticisms. And I mean, you know, the pencil scene is iconic for, for many reasons. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's like a, a force of nature type performance that we will probably never see again. Um, from from an actor um and yeah I, I just can't even imagine thinking that joaquin phoenix did a better job than than him in this film yeah well uh newsflash he didn't because uh, and and to your point about the the joker in this film being a, a highly intelligent villain he may not have a plan but he's very intelligent and uh deep thinking about the way he goes about executing his chaos if, if I mean, I think also part of it, we can get into this later, but I think Joker has a plan. I think that part of his whole character is that he is unreliable and makes and manipulates you and makes you think that he doesn't have a plan. What he, the whole time he has a plan. Uh, he's making bets on what people are going to do. He's making predictions as part of his plan, but he has a plan. I think that's actually the thing that I took away new this time watching the film is that uh, maybe it, there's he's not a narrator, but in the sense that the Joker is an unreliable narrator in the sense of every time he talks i think you have to take what he says with a grain of salt and think more about it and i think that's one of the things that i hadn't necessarily appreciated before and made me appreciate uh both the writing of this character and ledger's performance even more because he's so invested so engaged in this performance that it just feels so visceral and so authentic that i don't think it's a, you don't immediately realize that he's being uh as manipulated as he is because he's so strange and so out there um, you kind of just like trust the crazy things that he's saying and don't question the crazy things that he's saying. I don't know. That that's just an experience that I've kind of had uh, over time watching this film, which uh, makes it all the more amazing. And and to think that if you just put some gay cowboy in a, a gay cowboy in some makeup, you can get something like the Joker. Uh, pretty remarkable. Maybe we won't ever see something like that again. 
uh, anyway, mo- moving on from that, the other new character to the film and the last one that I want to spend a significant amount of time talking about is Harvey Dent, uh, Two-Face. He does become by the end of the film, played by Aaron Eckhart, uh, someone who really you would have thought his his career would have some sort of meteoric rise after this. But I mean, about five years after that, he was I mean, ba- basically anonymous again, which is pretty, pretty astounding to me because this performance is is amazing. It, it really feels like as much as Batman and Joker face off against each other and are great foils for each other. Dent, Dent oddly is this weird MacGuffin that they're fighting over in a strange way. Like if we, whoever has Dent has, you know, has won the war uh, in a strange way. And I, and I think that it makes it a, such an interesting character when you think about where Dent is at the start of the film as this, you know, high profile district attorney, the white knight of Gotham has the affection of, of Rachel. And, you know, by, by the end has been proven that he's no better than anyone else uh, and, so, and not any necessarily better than, than Joker himself. And I think that Aaron Eckhart's pain and frustration and rage and, a, you know, I guess penchant for flying off the handle by the end of the film when he has become Two-Face is something really interesting. And it's a shame that he doesn't quite live up in my, in my view to the standard that's set by Bale or Ledger, but uh, it's, I, I don't want to forget about this performance either. Cause I, I do think it might be the best of Aaron Eckhart's career. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, this is one of the most underrated performances in a superhero movie, in my opinion, just because he is overshadowed to 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 you know some extent by Bale and Ledger, I think. But he's so good in this movie, and his character is arguably you know you're, you're kind of hinting at it. There's he's arguably the most important character in this movie because um, he's he like, is the metaphor for. I mean, if the film is about it, Gotham, yeah, exactly. he is the metaphor for Gotham. Exactly. He is the obvious metaphor for Gotham. Like, I think yeah. the other characters, you can see it in in Batman, right? Maybe you could even see it a, a bit in the Joker, but it's more complex, right? This yeah. is the the obvious picture of it that all of Gotham can see, right? And that's yeah. why Batman makes the decision that he makes in the end to, hey, we're going to protect the image of Dent, right? Because the city can't take another one of its, you know, so-called heroes falling yeah. uh, from, from grace. And, and so Batman can't take it. So. Yeah, and so we see him go right from the beginning, from crusading hero, right? And that's why that scene in the courtroom, as ridiculous as it is, I think it's, it, to some extent, it's purposely ridiculous because this is supposed to be like the most over-the-top, like lionized image of a person that you could possibly have, right? He's disarming a guy on the witness stand. He Finishing uh, you know, his the, interrogation. The crowd is applauding. Design. Yeah, the crowd is applauding. Like, this is like, it's it it is a fantasy, right? It is if it is like Gotham's fantasy of what you know this person Harvey of what Harvey Dent is actually like, and Harvey Dent just can't he can't fulfill that fantasy twenty four seven three sixty five, and that's why we see his descent happen, right? Um, and I think that Aaron Eckhart is totally believable, right? He has to you know go from a hundred on one side to a hundred on the other side and in, over the course of two and a half hours. And he does it without making it seem really rushed or, or forced, right? Like he is, he is broken by what happens to Rachel. Um, and, you know, I, I totally believed his descent to become uh, two face. And yeah, I think, I think he's, he's really, really good. And it's a shame that he doesn't get more recognition for this role because um, you know, he, he's, he's an excellent second villain i guess if, if you want to call him that but, but also man, like, second hero i don't know <laughs> yeah this this is like we talk about movies that have the the villain problem sometimes because they have too many villains uh spider-man 3 
there's an example for you. But yeah, there's some other um, problems with Spider-Man three too. Yes, but that that is a major one. But like here, you have like they have two villains to some extent, and they are like could be the number one villain in any other superhero movie. Honestly, they're just excellent characters and performances. Jay, do you believe in Harvey Dent? I did, right? Um, and you know, you you you've made some good points. I think maybe I'm also a little bit guilty of underrating his performance in this movie. I think if I think like like conceivably, like if you you know bumped into me on the street and started talking to me about this movie, like I could go on like an hour without even bringing him up. Um, and that, I mean, you know, that's not to say that you know he's ultimately not important or forgettable. He's not, but you're you know you're right in that you know he is a little bit overshadowed by you know the the two performances we just talked about earlier. But you know I'll agree, like you know it actually it was you know quite a great performance, and it took I guess you know this rewatch to remind me of that but you're you're right scott harvey and that you know he goes from 100 on one side to 100 on the other and you know that doing that in a believable manner is no small feat so you know props to him and yeah scott sheldon i'll agree you know it is a little sad that you know we don't get more of him uh just generally after this movie because i'll agree you know he maybe should have had a meteoric rise uh after you know being an important part of such an important film but what do i know yeah, Scott, I, I think that is actually the the best way I've I've heard it put in terms of the what's so as, astounding about this performance is its ability. Again, third ter, third person now to say this on the podcast to go from one hundred on one side to one hundred on the other because Dent is like the epitome of passion in, in what he's doing. You're right, like the fantastical courtroom scene where he's disarming and then finishing, you know, the conviction or whatever on the stand or whatever. It's like it's crazy. It's outlandish. You'd never see that in, in, I mean, maybe you'd see it in another film of people who just doing ridiculous court scenes, who knows? But uh, I will say, uh, hold hold your hold your opinion on court scenes until you see the see the one in The Dark Knight Rises with, uh, I think it's Scarecrow is the judge or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I think that it, it, it really going, going from that to, you know, two hours later, you're seeing him flip a coin in an alleyway to decide whether or not to shoot someone in the head. And he just, like, he's, it's just so clear he's put all of himself into both sides of that thing. And the commitment there really is something special. And it makes you, it really makes you appreciate that. Yes. All these are, are great actors, but they're, but Christopher Nolan is to, to bring it back to the whole series that we're talking about here. Christopher Nolan is really able to get something extra out of the people that he works with. And he's not unique in that. Uh, the greatest directors get something special out of their performers all, all the time. But in these key three performances in the film, the fact that Nolan is able to, inspire something a little bit extra in Bale, in Ledger, in in uh, in Eckhart. I think it's really something that's shouldn't be forgotten, uh, the type of director and and what Nolan himself is also capable of, uh, of doing because many other, I shouldn't say many, at least a few other people have tried to adapt all three of these characters onto the screen before and never to the same effect, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. And I mean, like there there's no movie that made him such a principal part of the action like this one did. Yeah. Um, but he rises to the occasion. Yeah, absolutely. All right, you guys, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about those three key performances because I think they are the most to talk about. But I do want to give a little bit of time to air any other supporting roles here that we want to mention. Jay, we'll start with you first. If you had to mention one other supporting performance that you want to talk about here of the four or five other ones that we have that are significant, who would you talk about? Uh, if it has to be one, you know, uh, Gary Oldman, Commissioner Gordon, you know, uh, and, and you know that that that's not an e- a call I make easily, but 
you know, again, I, I really do appreciate, you know, his, I mean, you know, Gordon as a character, his efforts and, you know, Oldman and, you know, how he like, you know, plays them out. Right. Like this is a guy who's just, you know, wants to do some good is trying incredibly hard. And by the end, you know, is like similarly, uh, I mean, not similar, but is you know, damaged in his own way of, you know, kind of realizing like, you know, he's, he's lost this, you know, battle for, for Gotham soul. And he, you know, like, you know, despite, you know, everything he put into it, you know, working with Batman, faking his own death, taking down the Joker, you know, he you know, is just lost. And, you know, I, I think that comes out really well. Um, and, you know, I, I, I can't remember this film or this franchise, you know, without remembering his performance, you know, across the films, but also like in this movie. Yeah, I'll be really interested to see what Jeffrey Wright does with this role next year with, uh, you know, because I, th- I believe he's going to be Jim Gordon in in. Uh, the Batman film with Robert Pattinson. Maybe I'm misremembering that, but I think that he is. Yeah, so I think it's going to be a very different Jim Gordon, I'd imagine, than the one Gary Oldman does. Because, yeah, Jay, I, I totally agree. I don't. I don't think that I can see. I can, just can't picture. Like when I think of Jim Gordon, I think of Gary Oldman. I think that I just can't separate those those two performances. And, and one of the things that I love about his performance in this one in particular is in the first one, you see this like nervous collaboration he has with Batman in the start of the Dark Knight. It's this it feels like it's in some ways it's like this really intimate relationship between the two of them. They work so closely together. Now, neither of them are completely looped into what everyone, the other is doing all the time, but they have this really trusting and feels like very loyal relationship between the two of them. But by the end of the film, what the Joker is able to do to tear these people apart, the desperation that you see Gordon have to rescue Harvey Dent, to prevent these things from happening with the Joker, I think is just, it's a, it's a really strong performance from from Gary Oldman there. So I, I totally agree that he's someone someone to call out. Scott, would you call out someone different or would you also call out Oldman? I mean it's hard it's hard to say anything bad about Oldman's performance. I think that you know again you talk about so much of this movie is people walking the line between hero and villain. Like I think he has to do that on Gotham's behalf, right? By yeah. being sort of this liaison to, towards Batman who is not the most popular person in the eyes of Gotham, but also still upholding the law right which says that at some times hey you need to apprehend this person you need to apprehend batman because he's dangerous and uh so he has to play both sides of things too and i think he does that really well um i mean i think it is worth mentioning maggie gyllenhaal but i i want to talk more about her character i guess than i do about her performance so we can uh hold off on that for the time being Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to talk about Maggie Gyllenhaal briefly. Just the, I did look into it. Katie Holmes. So, so she actually was given an offer to return to the film. She actually turned it down to shoot other films. I think that the reception that she got from yeah, Batman Begins probably. was so I don't know poor that she just didn't want to bother herself with returning it. It seems like they didn't make an effort to to bring her back, which uh, I can't remember how in depth we had discussed that when we were talking about Batman Begins. But to bring in Maggie Gyllenhaal, like if you just talk about the performance. It was good. It's not the most memorable one. I mean, to me, yeah, yeah. It's not like I don't really see too much difference between this performance and Katie Holmes, if I'm being honest. Yeah, like like maybe the character is slightly more believable. And I think one of the interesting things about about this film, and I, I, again, this is more about the character as well as the performance. Um, so, Scott, if you w- do want to throw in your comments here, if, if they're related to what I'm about to say, go for it. Uh, but one of the things that I like is that I do as much shtick as Nolan gets in other films about writing these sort of, I don't know, mediocre female characters. I think that he actually writes a a really empowering character in the first half of this film. 
mean, you think about this character of Rachel, who is an assistant, sure, an assistant district attorney. Maybe she's not in a position of power necessarily, but she's someone who is unwilling to compromise on her own personal values and morals to end up with someone like Bruce and to end up uh, with that. Rather, she sticks to her guns. She's this independent decision maker and decides that she, you know, she's going to marry Harvey Dent, whatever. I think there's obviously some concern in the last third of the movie about everything that happens there and maybe some accusations of fridging, which uh, we really hate talking about on this podcast for obvious reasons. But yeah, I think like the first half of this film is a, is a character that you see written that I think that is like, oh, actually, this is a, a pretty well-written character in some regards. And then what happens in the, in the last third of the film, obviously, cast that character aside. But uh, for the performance overall, I think, look, it, it's fine. It's good. Like, maybe I would feel differently if she isn't surrounded by like five of some of the best performances uh, that you'll see in any movie, in my opinion, between the three we talked about, Old Men, and I also would throw out Michael Caine as well, I think. She has some incredible. I mean, as as is appropriate for Michael Caine, and will continue to be appropriate throughout all the Nolan movies that Michael Caine is in. He's a great storyteller in these films. I mean, man, he just gets the best stories and has the best uh, you know, kind of mentorship lines in film, and I love him for it. But yeah, I, I don't know what more this film gets out of Maggie Gyllenhaal than it would have Katie Holmes from Batman Begins. But part of that is just that ultimately, it, maybe it's an important character for driving plot, but. Uh, not always having the most agency. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is right. I also think it's a friendly spin on this character because I think that yeah, maybe. Um, yes, okay. She she won't compromise her principles, but at the same time, like again, and this is this is a consistent problem. Like when Bruce is like, okay, I'll be the person you want to be. Like the second he is like that, she's like, okay, I'm back in. Like I'll I'll be with you again. No, like, but but she's not. Oh, no, that's like, not Jill. true. No, no, that's not true at all. But th they have that scene together, right? Where she basically says that that she will be with him if he if he promises to be, um, you know, the the person that she wants him to be, or whatever the person that she thinks that he is deep down. And yeah, she's she's saying that because she said these things all long ago. But then the next scene is her writing this letter to him, giving it to Alfred, and saying. We're not going to be yeah. together, even if he because right, yes, because he won't do it, right. But the the point is, like, if he if he were to shift who he were, I mean, we see this in the in the first film, I think, to some extent. You know, even for for a little bit, then she's like, I'm ready to drop everything and be with you, even after all this time, and after all these years of me seeing this other side of you. I, and I just don't know. I just I I don't know that I I like that decision from. Her character, right? Because she is supposed to be strong. She is supposed to be, um, yeah. you know, fo following her own set of, of morals, right? And she is, right? She is. She, she she still would be in that scenario, but it's just like such a, a quick turnaround to be like, yes, I, I will be with you because I am the love interest for Bruce Wayne and Batman. And so this needs to happen or whatever because of uh, it's a superhero movie. And of course, you know, we talked about this in The Prestige. He kills her off in the last third of the movie, and it's just like he—it it still seems like he, he doesn't quite know what to do with with uh, with female characters, and that's a shame because he is such an in incredible director in so many other respects. And ultimately, that doesn't really bring the film down too much in, in my estimation. But I think if we're going to be fair and, and assess and say where there are some some weaknesses in the film, yeah, this character is still a question mark. Yeah, I, I think it's better than in Batman Begins. And, and I guess I just interpret it differently. I, I disagree with your assessment of, of her being um, 
in this in this instance being willing to drop everything and be with Bruce because I I mean maybe I've just overread it too much into it by after having seen it so many times and uh, I've just like warped my sense of perception on it but I view the letter as yes she says I now realize that you know there will never be a time where you no longer need Batman and I think that that is just a proxy for me saying actually you know what I know I said these things to you but what I really want is I want to be with Harvey. And I that, that's the way I view that character. And that's her way of delivering that news to Bruce and co- and like covering her own ass for all like basically having said something that she's now reneging on. And I think that I mean, I guess that that is how I view that whole situation. And, and I understand I understand where you're coming from and how you're viewing that differently. But maybe maybe that's just a positive spin. I don't know. But I view that character as someone who is taking a stand of you know what? I told you these things long ago, but my feelings have changed and I don't want to be with you. I want to be with Harvey. Harvey's the person that I want to be with. And that's who I'm going to go be with. Jay, I don't know if you have your own thoughts about any of this. If you side with one side or the other, or have a completely new take. No, uh, uh, I I think I agree with you. Um, And that, yeah, I I think that, you know, the letter is kind of just her way of, you know, covering for herself. And I think that, you know, like, yeah, you know, there is that scene where, you know, it seems like she might be saying, you know, oh, like, you know, we're going to be together. But I think that, you know, she, you know, like the letter says, kind of just has come to this point of realizing, you know what, like, this isn't actually what I want, despite what I said once upon a time. Yeah. But, okay. But I still think there's the implication there, right? Like she's saying, I've realized you don't need Batman. If, if he like, she's realized basically that she can't change him anymore. But still, there's the implication there, right? That if he dropped Batman, that the fact that he 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 uh, he still you know has Batman and he still is Batman, that is what is keeping them from being together. And so it just seems to her, it seems to be to me that she's just surrendering and saying, "Look, I'm never I'm never going to be able to change you. If I could, I would be with you. But I've accepted at this point that I I'm never going to be able to change you. And so therefore, I am going to go be with Harvey." But that yeah, seems a little bit reductionist, right? Because like she opens with, you know, like I'm going to marry Harvey Dent. I love him. And then she goes on to talk about, you know, the fact that Bruce, you know, will always need Batman. And, you know, she talks about how, you know, when she said that, you know, if he ever like, you know, took off the cowl that they would, you know, be together. But it, it, it I mean, I don't know. We, we, we could talk about the way the letter is written probably for a little while. But I mean, to me, like the fact that she opens with, you know, I'm going to marry Harvey Dent. I love him. You know, to me, like speaks to like, this is just as much about like, you know, me realizing we need Batman as, you know, me realizing that this is how I want my life to look. Yeah. Look, I, I think, I think the way that you're interpreting Scott is valid. I, I completely understand where you're coming from and, and reading it that way. It's just not, it's just not how I read it at, at this point, having seen the movie as, much, as yeah. many times as I have, but. And I mean, I think that it's, it's good, right? It is good for the character that she does come to that decision. Like it, yeah, it does mean that she is a yeah. strong character for finally realizing that she is not going to that, to, to get to give up on Bruce to some extent. But at the same time, I, I don't know. I just I don't like the way that she is portrayed as having such shifting allegiances, you know, just based on, you know, maybe the drop of a hat. Right. Based on what Bruce decides to do, um, she she will she will be with him in that way. And I guess that's my final say on on this matter. Yeah, I think we're just gonna have to have to disagree on that one, but that's okay. That happens. I can't believe we had we found something to disagree on in this movie. Ugh, what are we gonna do? Um, yeah, no. I so I think you know with, with that behind us, we will probably revisit Rachel uh, in a little bit if there's anything else to say on her. But for now, moving on to the many plots and themes I talked about them before. It's one of those films that yes, it's amazing on the surface, 
absolutely uh, an incredible spectacle to watch. But there's also just so much more there on second, third, fourth, fifth rewatch uh, to, to kind of collect. And and one of the key themes of this film that I think is right there on the surface and worth talking about is the corruptibility of people, right? You know, so much of this film is about can someone like the Joker bring someone who is better than him, who is, you know, Harvey Dent can bring Gotham, Harvey Dent, however you want to think about it, down to his level. Can can that be done to anyone? And I think the film posits the, the answer to that question is yes. Guys, what did you think about this theme overall as sort of a, a central tenet? Oh, wow. can't believe I just said that. Central tenet of, uh, uh, of the film. Uh, this idea that, you know, no one is pure, purely good. I mean, I think it works really well, right? I think, I mean, Harvey Dent is, he is the golden boy. He is the poster child uh, for this. And I, I think it just goes to show, right, that anyone in a position of power, like idealism is just not attainable, right? Like it, it really, it really does make you, make me in particular think coming out of law school, you know, like so, so many of us are idealists about we're going to go out and change the world or whatever. And it's just maybe not, not attainable, right? If you, if once, once you ascend to a certain position of power, right, you have to do certain unseemly things in order to protect the the greater good in order to protect the community um you're not going to be able to stick to your principles in every single situation that's unfortunate but i mean i think that's the reality that this movie posits right and that's that's what uh harvey dent is forced to confront because he again he starts out as the golden boy he starts out as the poster child but once things hit home to him personally right he he has to do what he feels is the only way to get justice um, for, you know, for Rachel's death and to go after the Joker, to go after Batman. Um, and he, you know, ultimately by the end, he's, he's, uh, you know, a, a shadow of what he was at the beginning of the movie, but, you know, to, to sort of tie a bow on that theme, right. Uh, they have to Bruce and Batman makes the decision and Gordon make the decision that they have to prop this guy up as, Hey, he, he remained a hero to the very end for the sake of, of the people. And it just, it goes to show that, you know, maybe the, the images that we see of, of certain people, of certain leaders of pe people in power on, on TV, maybe not nowadays, because most of our leaders and people in power suck and we can clearly see that. Um, but in other circumstances, um, you know, what we see is not necessarily what reality is and, and what we, you know, what you actually get. Um, and I mean, that's, that's a really interesting idea for a superhero movie to probe because, you know, superheroes are the same way. We look at superheroes and think they are, you know, the, the epitome of good. They, they embody good and nothing else. And the reality is you just, you can't do that. There's going to be times when you have to to compromise your own principles. There's going to be times when you have to throw Joker off of a building, um, even though you uh, claim that you're you're never going to, or uh, throw Harvey Dent off of a building, sorry, even though you claim that you're never going to, to kill anybody. Um, and that's the reality of it, the situation. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it earlier a little bit, talking about the whole quote around, you know, you either die a hero or you live long, long enough to see yourself become a villain. Harvey Dent surviving, you know, the sort of... Uh, I guess the kidnapping and the explosion of, of the building that he was in, uh, he wasn't given the gift of being able to die a hero. He had to live long enough to see himself become a villain. And that was inescapable. And in sort of trying to preserve, you know, this heroic image of Harvey Dent, of 
uh, of you know the, the White Knight of Gotham, do then Gordon and Batman find themselves also becoming villains rather than you know being the heroes that they were always uh, meant to be? I think that's a, a really interesting question, Jay. I don't know if you have any thoughts to add to it. That that, that is a, that's a heavy question. <laughs> it's very loaded. Um, personally, you know, I don't see them as turning to villains, right? Uh, by making that choice, like you know, if but you know, it, it, again, like you know, what does it mean to be a villain? What does it mean to compromise your position? You know, and I think, you know, I, I think the fact that we could debate that for hours solely based off what we saw in this movie, you know, is again one of the reasons why I love it so much. You know, it takes this idea that you know is explored, you know, in you know, I, I you know, just to bring in comic book lore a little bit, you know, like what would happen if you got pushed over the edge? You know, things like the injustice storyline or even the killing joke. You know, have you ever had a really bad day? And yeah, you know, I mean, the killing joke was a big inspiration for this film. Yeah, no, and, and you can definitely see that. Um, and you know, the answer is, you know, everyone and every anyone and everyone can be corrupted. Um, and you know, that that's grim, but yeah. you know, the fact that you know it, it it's still like it, it's stirring. It's not like a it's grim in that it's grim, but it's not bleak. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like, I, I don't. I hear that everyone can be corrupted and I see the movie, you know, telling me that, but I don't sit here, you know, like absolutely devastated as a result. If anything, I'm just moved by, you know, like, the, I don't know, the harsh reality of life. Now I feel like I sound like a, a cliche, but. Well, yeah, but I, I think that this also kind of goes into the next thing I want to talk about it. And is that like when you're faced with these choices that everyone is corruptible, what like what then are you going to do about that? Right. And, and how far are you willing to go to do what it takes to preserve the image, to preserve whatever it is that you're trying to preserve here and do what is best for, in this case, Gotham, right? Preserving the image of Harvey and telling those lies and Batman on the surface becoming this villain who is responsible for all these things. You know, that is that the price that, you know, Gordon and, and, and Bruce have to pay to do what is best and do what is right. Is that the morality they have to sacrifice in telling these lies and, you know, besmirching, you know, the image of someone who has given everything to Gotham quite, you know, in some cases, quite literally. Um, and, and is that what it has to take? I found, you know, this is kind of the question I think that sticks the most with me every time I watch this film, like doing what it has to take, what does that mean, right? And I think the most recent time to kind of add a new angle to it, because I think this is probably an off-talked-about subject when it comes to this movie, is that if you put this movie in the context of the time it was made, right, you know, filming in 2007, released in 2008, is this film a metaphor or a commentary on the war that the U.S. was fighting at the time the movie was being made and the war for the war in Iraq, uh, the, the war on terror even is maybe even a better way to, to frame it guys. And, I, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this either, you know, instantly as this whole idea of doing what it takes to, to do what is right and do what is best, or, you know, this sort of potential social commentary on war as it was in 2008. Yeah. I think that, an interesting to, to talk about the social commentary angle. I think an interesting part of the movie that maybe ties into that is the whole boat sequence, right? And the fact that um, you have these two very distinct groups of people, right? You have just the citizens of Gotham, and then you have um, the the prisoners, right? And and it's a question of who is going to you know kill the other one in order to to save themselves. And 
in the end, neither one of them can do it, right? But they both come close. And there's this like idea that that we see played out that look in theory, right? It, it you feel like if you're if you're sitting here thinking about it, you're like, yeah, I would do it. I would blow up the other ship to pr- protect myself. Of course, I don't want to die. Um, but there's like you know, there's the guy who's on the citizen's boat who he gets the detonator and he can't do it, right? He he can't go through it. And so there's this idea that like it's easy to think about this in theory, but when you're there, when you actually have to be the one to press the button, um, when you actually have to be the one to, you know, be on the ground fighting in a war, um, you know, th- things are a lot different and uh, things aren't as black and white as, as they may seem, um, you know, to politicians, to us, um, to, you know, just what, what we are, uh, the image that we are presented to in the media. Um, and, you know, a lot of what Joker is doing, right, is he's trying to he's trying to turn Gotham against each other by, uh, you know, making these two disparate groups of people like by, by uh, like sort of making the social inequality that we see played out on a daily basis. Right. Between people of the lower classes, you know, maybe here represented by the prisoners and, you know, the regular citizens, the middle class, the upper class or whatever. He's trying to instigate literally class warfare here. And. You know, the if there's any sort of optimism to be taken from this movie, it's that neither one of them can go through it with it in the end, and that um, you know, no one, no, none of them die because um, because they weren't willing to to go that far. They weren't willing to press that button um, to you know simply save themselves. But a shockingly more optimistic take than Joker last year, Jay. What the. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, no matter which way you come at this movie in terms of how you think, you know, you should either stick to your morals or your principles or that you have to compromise them sometimes. Like, I think there there's something in there for like both sides of that. Um, something that, you know, I, I really enjoy. And I think you could even you could arguably even look at like, you know, the same like you and I could watch, you know, like the same conversation between Batman and Joker or the boat scene, you know, and and come away with, you know, slightly different like, you know, oh, like, you know, you you have to hold out and you have to, you know, stick to what's right. Um, of course, you know, the definition of like, you know, what they, they kind of portray as, you know, what is the right thing? You know, I think wavers a little bit. I think ultimately I land on, you know, it is like, you know, what is, you know, what is in the best interest of Gotham? Like what does Gotham need? Right. It's, and, you know, I, I think that ultimately, you know, you, you could argue, you know, oh, like he never wavers from that. Like that is the, the thing that he props above all else by by that Batman does, you know, by like, you know, tarnishing his own reputation and propping up Harvey Dent. But again, like, you know, you could also look at that and say, no, of course he compromised himself because he, you know, didn't like tell the truth and like, you know, didn't like, or like whatever else, you know? Um, and ultimately I, I keep, you know, I, I keep circling this with this thought of, you know, for the good of the realm, you know, I, I think of it like that because I've just started watching game of Thrones. Um, because we're on for the, the first time. First time, um, just finished season one, and that's a that's a theme that very much has played out, uh, you know, through the end of season one, and you know, both then and here, you know, I think that is the ultimate objective of some of these, you know, less morally flexible characters, and you know, ultimately, like it does, you know, kind of come back to bite them a little bit, but you know, I, I don't think you can say that they didn't, you know, stick to their morals like through and through. Yeah, and I will just add that one one you know telling part of this is that the one time that we see the Joker truly get rattled in the movie, right, is when 
the, they don't blow up the boats, right? They, they don't go through on what he fully expected to happen, right? Because he, he has his beliefs about human nature um, and that he tries to create these situations where his beliefs are validated and his beliefs are not validated on this instance. I mean, like they are, I mean, like he thinks he can make Batman cross the line and he does in the end. But this is the one time in the movie where, um, you know, his his sort of cynicism about human nature, you know, does it is isn't validated. And so it makes sense that that's the one moment where he he really is taken aback by what happens. Yeah. And I think this is juxtaposed, interestingly, up against the we haven't really talked about Morgan Freeman at all here with Lucius Fox, who is the one operating this sort of sonar machine at the end of the film that you know, kind of comes out and says right on the nose that like, I, I'm not okay with this. This is an invasion of privacy. I am not comfortable with one one person having this much sort of power and oversight over the people and then doing what it takes in this moment. But then in the end, kind of, well, the way to use to use the film's words, rewarding that, you know, that trust or that loyalty um, by allowing Lucius to type his name and press enter and shut the whole machine down. I think that it's just such an interesting juxtaposition for doing what it takes you know, asterisk within reason or up to a certain point um, and recognizing that what you're doing is wrong, right? Because Bruce knows that what he's doing here is wrong, but but believes that he has to do it to do what's right. And so I, I think that it's such an interesting, I think it is an interesting, I mean, to go back to the social commentary piece, like I have no idea Christopher Nolan's, I mean, I have a pretty good idea of what actually Christopher Nolan's political beliefs are and probably his, based on this movie, what his stance is about war at the time, if it is indeed, you know, a crack that he's making at as sort of a social commentary. And I think it actually works really well, right? It's a obviously it's a critique of doing what, it, you know, what it has to take uh, to to accomplish certain things to you know, protect ourselves against, you know, weapons of mass destruction or whatever it might have been at the time. I'm not as familiar probably with the Iraq war as, as he was given he was making the film at the time. But I, yeah, I think it, I think it, it is a really interesting commentary and I've seen even people try to compare it to the, the, an allegory, even although this would be, I think less intentional just because it came after, but the rise of ISIS as well, in terms of doing what it has to take, uh, do, sorry, doing what it, what it has to take in the Middle East and having this negative consequence after the fact, right. Of, you know, you've done what it has to take and you thought that you did what, what was going to be right. But here is this long-term negative consequence for this thing that you're doing. And that's not necessarily played out in this film. I think that, if anything, that's something that we're, we might see or might not see in The Dark Knight Rises as an effect of everything that's happened here in The Dark Knight. But uh, these sacrifices that you have to make, you may think that you're doing what's right. But you know, maybe in the end, maybe it's actually not the best thing for Gotham. And again, in the short term, they have preserved the image of Harvey Dent. But in the long term, what is that going to mean? Uh, overall, I think that's a, that's a bit more of a question mark than an answer that this film has to offer. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to get into ethical theory, but it's a very they take a very utilitarian look at um, things. You know that w they're doing what they what they feel they have to do to help the greater good in the end, and um, you know there are upsides and downsides to that. Yeah. All right. Two major topics I think left before we get to our wrap up phase. The first. I promised that we'd revisit Rachel. We've talked about her a little bit already, so we'll see where the conversation takes us here. But the thing that I want to talk about more, I think, is particularly Alfred's action here to burn the letter that Rachel ha ha had written uh, to Bruce. We talked about sort of the dynamic between Bruce and Rachel already. But guys, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Alfred taking matters into his own, his own hand. Jay, we'll start with you first. How did you kind of view this decision by Alfred taking a little bit of agency? 
I go back and forward, back and forth. Uh, I, I feel like every every time I watch this movie, or every time I, you know, if if it like you know crosses my mind, um, and the answer is like I don't, you know, I don't really know. Um, like you know, and we we may or may not revisit this, you know, when we talk about the next and final movie in this trilogy, but you know, ultimately, like, I, I think the answer is, you know, like, oh, like, you know, ob- objectively speaking, he probably shouldn't have done that. Like, you know, did Bruce have a right to know, you know, and, you know, hindsight's a little bit 2020, right? So, you know, when we see how this affects him later on, um, and how, you know, and how reading or not reading the letter, you know, shaped, you know, the next several years of his life, you know, you can raise all sorts of objections to what Alfred did, but just, you know, within the scope of it, right? Like, you know, I, you think he had a right to know, or, you know, maybe even, you know, to know, you know, a few months after, but, you know, burning the letter and just deciding, you know what, I'm not going to let this happen. Like, yeah. I'm not going to, you know, put Bruce through this pain, you know, ultimately I think is not a call that's his to make, but given, you know, again, everything that's happening and, you know, this idea of, you know, rewarding trust and also, you know, doing what you have to, and you see this, you know, juxtaposed with the propping up of the Harvey of Harvey Dent and the shutting down of the sonar machine. You know, this is one that, you know, I, I think is just as like head scratching. Yeah. You know, we're uh, as the propping of Harvey Dent, where you're like, you know, you're not really sure. Um, at least to me, you know, like what the right thing to do was, even though you kind, you kind of know, right. Like how he should know, you know, and the people like, and the people, both Bruce and the people kind of deserve to be trusted with the truth. But yeah. in this case, you know, Alfred, and Batman and Gordon decide, you know, like they they ultimately just can't be. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I love about this is that as much as we were just been talking about the almost macrocosm situation of we have to do what it takes to preserve Harvey Dent's image because it's what's best for Gotham. I love how this is juxtaposed with a kind of a microcosmic decision of Alfred is I have to protect Bruce Wayne. Maybe Batman doesn't have limits, but Bruce Wayne does. And I have to protect Bruce Wayne from knowing this because this is what is best for him. And then of course, maybe what's best for Gotham as well. But I just find that really, I think confirms that, that Chris Nolan, like he knows what he's doing, right? Like he knows the, the themes that he's trying to hit because not only does he give you the, the big picture, but he gives you the small one as well. And for me, look, I don't, I don't really have an opinion either way of whether it's the right thing to do, but I think it's a brilliant thing to do in the context of the film to, you know, to have Bruce Wayne be this character of Batman and have you know, essentially enacting all of this agency over Gotham and doing what's best for Gotham while in the background, you have Alfred uh, doing what is best for, for Bruce Wayne as well. And I think that we, you know, the dark Knight rises, we will tend to contend. And even the end of this movie, right? I think that we are contending a little bit with what that, what the ultimate effect of Alfred's action might be. But I, yeah, I just love, I love that this is done in the movie and I, I, don't really care as much whether or not it was the right thing to do. I think it's a perfect ju- juxtaposition for the larger narrative that's happening. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, you know, you talk about the protective instinct. I think that's exactly where this comes from, right? He, yep. he feels that if Bruce still clings to the belief that, you know, that Rachel, I mean, obviously Rachel passes away, which creates you know a sort of a wrench in things, but still as, as a tribute to her memory, perhaps Bruce, you know, may eventually step away from being Batman, which is, I think, something that that Alfred wants because, uh, you know, he 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 has some consternation about Bruce's role as Batman, and you know, like like we've been talking about the fact that he seems to think Batman's power is limitless, 
um, throughout this movie. And so I think he just, he wants to preserve this idea in Bruce's head that um, not being Batman is, I mean, on the one hand, if she was alive, a way to be with Rachel. And if, because she's dead now, a tribute to her memory. And so because he cares about Rachel so much, like that, as long as that possibility is out there, there's still the possibility that he will stop being Batman at some point and stop putting himself at risk so often. And right, and that's what makes, you know, we didn't talk about this element necessarily, but Joker's decision to pit Harvey Dent versus Rachel uh, in terms of who is Batman going to save? Because it's like, are you going to save Gotham, right, by saving Harvey Dent, or are you going to save the person you love, Rachel? And obviously, you know, he, he plays Batman totally, but I think what makes Rachel's death so brutal, right, is that... In her final moment, she has to listen to the fact that Batman has shown up to save Harvey. The, her final moment, her final living moment is her basically having her beliefs about um, Bruce confirmed that he actually cares more about being Batman than he cares about being Bruce Wayne. And that's why he's come to save Harvey instead of her in the end, even though that's not the reality of what happened. That is what she has to die believing. Um, and so there's there's so many layers to what's going on. And it's just so much richer than any other comic book film. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that angle before, Scott. I'll, as many times as I've seen this movie, I never thought yeah. about what yeah, Rachel's kind of going through in the last oh. second there. So I think that's a, I think that's a great point. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I, I would just confirm. I also hadn't thought of it that way. And now I'm, I'm feeling uh, a, a whole new kind of grim thanks to this movie. Um, yeah. It's... Uh, God, I love this movie. Thanks, Scott. You really ruined Jay's day already. There you go. Uh, yeah. So last thing, guys, it, I'd say saving the best for last, but that's not quite right, even though it is it is a great thing. And that is the action sequences. We really haven't talked very much about them at all. And some of them are really quite amazing, if I, if I uh, am being honest. But first, before we get to a particular action scene or moment, I do want to talk about the bat pod. Uh, I mean... <laughs> You have the tumbler in in Batman Begins, and people are like, "What is this military vehicle doing?" Uh, you know, running across the streets of Gotham, and and somehow uh, Chris Nolan manages to, you know, in real life, this is a real thing that they made, construct this pseudo motorcycle called the Bat Pod that literally no one could ride. I mean, the stunt double for Christian Bale had to do all of the scenes that where Batman is riding the Bat Pod. Because they would literally not let Christian Bale ride the bike because they thought it was too dangerous. I mean, that's how freaking psycho uh, this thing is. But, you know, art art is life, I guess. I don't know. But, guys, what did you think about the bat pod as an evolution of the of the machinery? I don't know a better way to put it that, that the first film, Batman Begins, kind of comes up with. Jay, we'll start with you first. The bat pod is fine. Um, and that's really all I have to say. Yeah. I will say for all the, the good and uh, all the exciting things that we get to see from comics, animated shows, etc., you know, brought to life in these Batman films, the, the Batmobile again has never like, or, you know, the Bat vehicle, if you will, has never really been one that I, I think has been done in a way that was, you know, all points like, you know, technically believable comic book fun, what you know whatever like i i've never you know been especially like wowed um and i i think that kind of holds up with the bat pod like you know it, it it's fine i think it totally works but it, you know it's fine that's all you're gonna get from me 
Just just think about the first time you saw this though, and that and that bat pod pops out of the oh, tumbler. Well the, well, the first time I saw it, I probably went nuts. Um, yeah, like, exactly. I think I did, it's I did awesome. go nuts. Yeah, no, but as a kid, you know, again after you know a dozen or so rewatches, it's more you now. It's kind of like okay, this is a little absurd, but yeah, it's also more absurd when you think about the fact they literally didn't let Christian Bale ride the bike. Yeah, Scott, go ahead. I mean, you know, these are the types of things that I don't really have much of an opinion about. Kind of like costumes suits whatever you want to call them um yeah I, I know but i mean it's cool right like it, it's it's fun to watch i think it is consistent with like okay if you have this like we said if we have this tumbler if you have this tank of a batmobile sure why not why wouldn't you also have this weird hybrid bike thing that you know doesn't can't actually exist uh, it's just one of those things that i kind of just shrug my so- shoulders and i'm like okay cool sure why not let's just go along for the ride yeah, that's fair enough. But I think one of the things that even as much as I am a fan of the Bat Pod, I think is really cool. I, d- I do get what you're saying there, Jay, that over time, you know, five, ten rewatches and you're like, OK, it's the Bat Pod, whatever. Move on. Um, I, I get I, I get what you're saying there. But one of the things that I think benefits the Bat Pod so much is that it's like in like the coolest freaking scene in the whole movie. I mean, that truck chase scene uh, going down the street and then the culmination of that scene after, you know, everything's wrecked and you have this you know, literally face-off moment between the Joker and Batman for the, I think that's the first time really they have like their real face-off moment outside of the interrogation room. But I mean, guys, this scene's like absolutely incredible. And I think in some ways kind of subverts a lot of the notion of an act action sequence, especially in a comic book movie. I mean, you do have sort of like the big set piece nature of the fact that the Joker's men bring down a helicopter and, you know, he's firing a, you know, an arc, like a rocket propelled grenade launcher at, at this truck. There is like the bombastic elements of it, but really the, the, part that resonates the most and it's just like the most and scott i think i like snapped you this when i was watching it it's just like when heath ledger gets out of you know gets out of the truck has his has his machine gun and is just walking down the street yeah hit me i mean guys it's just absolutely unreal stuff what do you think about you know this action sequence if you want to bring in other examples as well there is a couple other ones i want to mention after but other action sequences in this film how do you think action film like these action sequences fit into the movie how do they either enhance or and if you believe this, like take away from the film overall, what do you guys think? I'll, I'll go ahead and say that. I mean, I love the truck chase sequence. I think it's it's really thrilling. What I will to again to offer a small critique. Yeah. Why is there the police officer whose only job is just to make quips the entire time? Like I and I'm struggling to remember one off the top of my head. Even even as I am remembering, I didn't sign up for this. Yes, exactly. Stuff like that. I mean, they're not funny, right? They they are the type of lame, um, like jokes that you would expect from like Batman Forever or something. Like I I just don't understand what the purpose of of that character. I mean, it's okay to have some levity in the moment, but it's just like it takes away from the the action sequence i think and you know it's not funny in the end so that that is my one critique of the truck chase sequence i do love the opening as well i think that it perfectly sets up who joker is as a character as an agent of chaos right mm-hmm. that he's like i'm going to have my you know henchmen here to help me rob this bank and then the second we've robbed the bank i'm just going to kill all of them and yeah. drive a school bus out of this bank because again why not? I, I, another like microcosm of a theme in the film of like this idea of escalation like i'm going to do something crazier next right i'm just i'm going to tell each yeah. one of the different people to kill the previous like a particular guy and then in the end uh i'm gonna i'm supposed to kill the bus driver uh, yeah. With all the money. yeah yeah exactly no it's it's hilarious jay what, what are your thoughts on the you know the truck chase scene the end of the truck chase scene other action sequences in the film and how they complement the film what, what do you think 
Yeah, I think on a whole, you know, I am much happier with the action sequences in this movie. I remember talking uh, in Batman Begins about how I thought some of the hand-to-hand combat, especially, was a little bit disappointing. But um, I think it, I mean, you know, relative to how much I love the rest of the movie. Uh, and in this case, you know, I think it uh, definitely took a step up. You know, I guess just to bring another uh, action sequence into it, you know, Hong Kong yep. uh, isn't one, you know, I immediately think about. And, you know, I sometimes jot things down, you know, while I'm watching these things. Uh, these movies for our countdowns. And, you know, I, I basically wrote, you know, the Lao plot is fine. Uh, you know, the Hong Kong stuff is fine, but it's, it's always a pleasure to see Batman go to work uh, and, you know, getting, you know, even just a few minutes of that, even if it's not something I think about, you know, after the fact that much, you know, while it's happening, uh, it's fun to see him, you know, again, like, you know, break in, essentially kidnap this guy and, you know, yeah. escape via skyhook. Yeah, no, that, that is a cool moment. I think one of the things that I like about, I think truck chase scene aside uh because I, th- I think that's the, that's the one exception to what i'm about to say but one of the things that i like about the action scenes in this film more so than the scenes in batman begins for the most part is that i really feel like it more identifies that the thing about batman that's not just like being a brawler like again like the truck chasing aside here it really feels like a lot of these set piece moments are more of batman the detective than batman the i'm going to beat the crap out of some villains and I think that that is one thing that the Batman Begins Batman Begins doesn't quite nail, but that the Dark Knight does. Because even in this moment, you know, take the end, right? Even if you take the end with the scene with the Joker, where he's going to have to go through the building, get up to the top floor, and beat up the Joker, which you know he does do. Like it is, it is still a hand, a lot of hand to hand combat there. There is a detective element of it where he's using the sonar. He has to figure out that the clowns are the hostages, and the hostages are in fact. Um, you know the 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 targets here, the enemies here, and I. So even in those, admittedly, that is a bit of a smaller example of that. But in that moment, I think in the Hong Kong thing in particular, it feels more noirish. Like it feels more Chris Nolan detective, like sort of like mystery movie ish. You know, harkening back to some of those older roots there than something like Batman Begins does. And I, and I like that flavor that gets added to the film because I think Nolan does that really well. And so when you have these set pieces kind of fusing innovative action with the truck scene, with you know, the sky hook in Hong Kong, with the sonar that he's using to to look and see through the whole building, I think that really the action scenes complement the movie perfectly and, and enhance the experience even more. Yeah, no, that's that's an aspect you kind of don't even think about with Batman just because of the way he's been portrayed in all types of media for quite a while. But yeah, I like that they leaned into that a little bit more. Yeah, he's the great detective. So there you go. All right, guys, as we enter our wrap up phase, I do want to ask one more question around, you know, the legacy of this film. I mean, this did come out the same year as Iron Man, which I mean, everyone I think should know at this point that is the first film in the MCU. But I think it's a fair argument to make that if not for the Dark Knight, would the MCU be able to have come into its own to have existed in the way that it did and flourish to the extent that it has i don't know if the dark knight has necessarily influenced in particular one film in the mcu or another you could probably have a whole podcast series about you know that and and deciding whether that would happen or not but i'm in i am curious to think what you guys see as sort of the legacy of this film overall and 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 jay we'll start with you first i think uh you know to make your point you know it it very much did legitimize the, the superhero movie the comic book movie i think you know as a you know, for lack of a better word, like legitimate film style, not just, you know, like a, a funny bam, wow, pow, you know, 
type film, I think it showed, you know, not only can you like, you know, create a film that, you know, again, like does satisfy, you know, the, the comic book element of things, but, you know, can really give you a lot to think about. And, you know, it, uh, you know, for a like, what, 12 year old Jay who very much, you know, wanted to like pitch these movies to his friends, you know, like, you know, The Dark Knight was like the golden example of no, like, you know, they're not all Spider-Man 3. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, uh, they're all it, X-Men 3 either. Yeah, right. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it holds up really well. And, you know, I think, you know, a lot of the, I guess the push towards, you know, making these movies, I'm sure you could credit to, you know, the Nolan films. I mean, you know, they've, they've set the impossible standard, right. That the DCEU has tried and ultimately, you know, not done a very good job of hitting, uh, you know, that the, this film is going to lord over the comic book, uh, superhero movie, you know, probably for the rest of my life, if not beyond. Yeah. I mean, to think about the fact that this film, you know, take it out of even the context of superhero films, right? Like into the context of like action adventure movies, even, I mean, you have someone like Sam Mendes talking about how the dark Knight influenced skyfall and things like that. I mean, I think that yes, bond is still a sort of like geekier type of movie. Sure. But the fact that this movie is able to not just set a standard for, its own genre or it's maybe core genre, but also set standards for genres that it's adjacent to. If you think about, you know, the 007 franchise, et cetera. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think that if you go up and down and ask anyone who, you know, Kevin Feige, any, anyone who operates in the MCU, anybody over, whether it's Jeff Johns or whoever it is in the DC, like doing the, I don't even know if Jeff Johns does the DCEU anymore. I don't know if they've kicked him out, <laughs> kicked him out after the great success that has been the first few films over there. But I think that if you ask any, any of those people, <laughs> I think that they'd be crazy not to point to something like the dark Knight at some point for some sort of inspiration. I mean, I was doing a, again, doing a bit more research for this and Michael B. Jordan talking about how Heath Ledger is the inspiration for his killmonger in black Panther and getting elements of that and, and, and weaving that into as well. Like obviously very different roles doing very different things, but you know, the fact that even a character like killmonger, and an actor like Michael B. Jordan is drawing on this very different type of performance from honestly a very different type of movie uh, in the Dark Knight versus Black Panther. And I think that kind of speaks to the legacy of the film. And, you know, I, again, I don't know if I need to even say this, but like legitimization wise, like sure, it didn't get a best picture nomination. And I feel like that's constantly the conversation we have now is like, is the next film to get nom like next comic book movie to get nominated for best picture going to be the one that breaks through? Uh, you know, breaks through and legitimizes best picture in, in terms of best picture wise comic book movies. And I don't think that you get any of those conversations without something like the dark Knight. It, it wasn't kind of the, you know, glass ceiling breaking movie for the, uh, for the genre, but it was the platform that allowed something like a black Panther to come into fruition and get nominated for best picture. You know, as much as I loathe, I really don't like the film from last year. It is the foundation for something like Joker to come through and get a Best Picture nomination. Like it, it, it does lay the foundation for these films, in my view. And I think that you know, Chris Nolan really wants his Best Picture nomination, which is probably why Tenet's still coming out this year. Scott, <laughs> what do you think? Well, I mean, yeah, Dunkirk, but um, yeah, uh, that's I mean, he wants I, to win Best Picture. That's fair. That was unfair. Yeah. Well, Inception was also nominated for Best Picture, I believe. Um, he wants but, to get the win. Yes, he, he does want the win, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, look, this is such an interesting question, I think, because there's there's so many topics to talk about that I think y'all have hit on. And Scott, I think I, I do agree with you. I mean, okay, yes, like we're 12 years removed from this movie. I think that um, 
yes, it is still talked about to this day as being the greatest comic book movie. I don't think it's lost any of its luster over the years. Um, yes, like it, it absolutely holds up and it's, it's influence upon the DCEU as we know it is undeniable. Like, you know, I, I won't rehash the points that I've said about why I think this works and those don't, but you can see the stamps. You, you can see the Dark Knight stamp all over the DCEU films particularly the ones that don't work particularly well. Um, Zack Snyder couldn't get away from it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. kept watching it on um, repeat. But number one, I don't know how much I feel that it has influenced the MCU. Um, number one, because the MCU was kind of already a thing, right? right? Like oh. the Iron Man was released in the same year. as Yes, they didn't have this whole plan about what it was going to become at that point. But Iron and Man they, was released Arguably the they might have. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe they did. Who knows? Um, but Iron Man and, Dark, and the Dark Knight were released in the same year. And and Marvel just has such a specific style in all of their films that I think is is um, so distinct from what we get with the Dark Knight, right? It's it's more about that balance of humor. And, um, and, and yes, there are movies which lean into one side more than the other. I mean, Thor Ragnarok obviously has more of the humorous side with Taika Waititi, and you see the director's stamps on various movies. But I just think Marvel has a style that is different from what we see in these movies and that probably would have existed and prospered um, even without the, the dark Knight, And I think the legitimization question is more complicated than, than just to say, yes, that this did legitimize comic films. Cause I don't think they're still legitimized yet. I'm, I'm sorry to say like, and, and maybe I'm, I'm leaning too heavily into the Oscars consideration here that you're bringing up Scott, but like yeah. it takes something like um, the dark Knight, right? That is, almost so far removed in, in many ways from what we consider to be a superhero movie to yeah. get that recognition still didn't get a best picture nomination. Right. And like, maybe this is just me being cynical about the Academy, but do we think Heath Ledger is as much of a shoe in as he is if he did not pass away? Like, I honestly feel like that was what really gave his ca campaign for the Oscars at that extra push that it needed to ultimately get him across the finish line, because otherwise it's still a Batman movie at the end of the day. Um, and so I think that that question is out there, but like it, it, again, it takes these cultural moments in order for these movies to get the respect that they deserve. It takes a black Panther, right? A movie that is so socially important for many reasons, just apart from, you know, the fact that it's a comic book film. Yeah, takes, and, but, but way more identifiably a comic book movie yeah. than The Dark Knight is, to your point. Yes, it takes Joker, right? Something that purports oh, to have yeah. some sort of social commentary about it, right? Like, I know, I, I would, we would contend that it's completely inert, but, like, that is, I think, the reason why it got the attention that it did, right? Because it, it purported to have, be saying something about mental health and about, wealth and all of these, you know, various themes, right, that go beyond the surface of a comic book movie. So I just don't think, I still don't think we're there yet to the point where like, and this is something we talk about on our podcast a lot, Scott, where genre films are finally going to be respected, where you can make a Mission Impossible film that doesn't have any sort of deeper meaning or themes, whatever, that is just an exciting, fun to watch action movie. And a Oscar voter is going to look at that and say, hey, look, craftsmanship wise, this is the same as 1917 or um little right. women or like a, a a best picture nominated film from last yeah. year right like we're, we're not at that point yet and who knows if we will ever get to that point yet but it's a shame right because i think like there's there's really no conceivable reason other than the fact that it's popcorn entertainment that something like mission impossible rogue nation or fallout isn't being considered for all of the awards 
Yeah, you only have to go back and listen to our podcast and my real thoughts on this. But Scott, all I'll say is that uh, if you're not examining the psyche of your characters like the Dark Knight is doing, it's not cinema. So there you go. Yeah, we still have those comments like that, again, to my point, that are yeah. being made. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that, I think that you make an interesting point. I, I So I when I make my comment about the MCU, I don't think I can necessarily influence the MCU's like the filmmaking style of these films. Cause I think that they, you're right. They have very unique styles, even within the sub franchises have very unique styles uh, within the MCU. But I, I wonder if the MCU as a thing exists to the magnitude that it does. That's something like the dark Knight. Yeah. Like That's is Avengers, the first Avengers movie gar- like making over a billion and a half dollars, whatever that the first Avengers movie did. Like, is that happening in 2000? 12 i don't remember when that movie came out 2012 i think um is that happening without the dark knight coming four years before it i don't know like we won't know the answer to that question that's like that's pure hypothesis but uh i wonder because i wonder because i think that i think that a movie like the dark knight even though it doesn't necessarily get the oscars uh love that we'd argue that it should have even though it won two oscars and i i take your point around heath ledger maybe not being uh the winner of the oscar that you know he did posthumously win if not for his death but uh, i think that even uh, Oscars aside, this movie making a billion dollars, this movie being critically received the way that it was, kind of gives like again like the tacit approval for you know what comic book movies are worth spending your money on to go see, and it's okay to do that because something like The Dark Knight exists. And so then you have you know not the first Iron Man. I mean, Hulk was also released in two thousand eight too, which is I think the point I was making around like, like they already had kind of the universe cooking there in two thousand eight. But uh, I, I think that Kevin Feige and the MCU were able to ride ride the commercial success of the dark knight uh for many years and build on that right like they're not just writing it that's a little bit unfair but ride like build off of that that foundation and build something altogether just completely different in terms of the juggernaut of a franchise uh with the mcu and, and i i wonder if they get the same traction if not for something like the dark knight but that's neither here nor there probably i agree jay any last thoughts you want to throw in here before we begin to wrap up no let's give it a score uh, well, before we get to that, I'm going to ask you your favorite scene. Jay, where are you choosing? Um, oh, this is so tough. He um, acts surprised as if he's not expecting the question no, every single time we ask him. No, you're, you're fair. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to point out that moments 2 through 800 are all moments where uh, Heath Ledger's on the screen. But I think my number one still just has to be the final few scenes of the movie. You know, the conversation between uh, Batman and Gordon and then Gordon's monologue. You know, again, like I don't. I, I'd be, I'd have to think really hard uh, to find a movie that, you know, stirs me that much at the, at the end as that. I mean, I, I wouldn't think that hard, but it, you know, it, it, in terms of how it would rank, you know, it, it's certainly very much up there. Scott, what about you? Yeah, I think I did like my, my top movie endings recently on like a Twitter thing. And I think this was number three on my list. So I got to go with the ending. Um, it Wait, what's is, the top two? I'm curious what the top two is really quickly. Before Sunset is number one and the taking of Pelham 123, the 1974 version, which actually is considered by many to be the, the greatest, one of the greatest, if not the greatest ending of all time. And if you haven't seen that film, absolute classic. Um, but yeah, you, you should. Um, I I think it's the ending. Like it, you know, there's that meme that goes around of, of DiCaprio and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where he's pointing at the screen, right? And everyone is um, is talking about how it's like, oh, and they say the title of the movie in the movie. Like this movie ended saying the title in the movie, right? Because it will never be done better than it is done at the end of this movie, saying the title of the movie in the movie, right? Like you should pe- people should just stop trying to do it because like 
this movie ended that. Um, kind of like I saw people saying that if you've been watching The Last Dance, that Michael Jordan ended the name Clyde because of what he did to Clyde Drexler. Th this movie ended um, the name, uh, ended doing saying the name of the movie in the movie. But um, for that reason, it's just it's epic and it, it's you know just the perfect way to to close off this experience um, and it's perfect. Yeah, I think. Uh, the, to be different, because I think the ending is a great pick, and to give an honorable mention first to the opening shot of the film, even. I mean, one of the things we didn't talk about all in the technical aspects is that Chris Nolan spent like literally millions of dollars just on 70 millimeter IMAX film to be able to shoot 20 minutes or whatever of it because it's just so freaking expensive. Like, he spent so much money on this film stock. And he, I think there's about 20 minutes of it in the film. And one of the longest sequences that is shot in 70 millimeter IMAX is this opening sequence where you have the Joker on the street put, about to put on his mask and get into the car. You have the people uh, in the building shooting down and, and, and I guess, zip lining down onto the top of the building. And I just think immediately with Hans Zimmer's like very subtle score there in the opening moments, I think you just immediately know the kind of movie that you're about to watch. And one of the things that I appreciate is that this film kind of opens in the daylight. Like Batman Begins is a really visually dark film. And to have the opening of this of the dark of the dark night tell you that, like, look, a lot of this film is going to take place in the bright of day this time. We know we're not just going to be this sort of really dark, gritty. I mean, it's still going to be gritty, but not this like visually dark experience. And I think that it really sets sets a evolved tone to the film. But if I had to pick my favorite scene, it's it's going to be the chase scene any day, uh, especially the finale, the end of that when yeah, Joker. I think it has to. I mean, it has to be something with Heath Ledger just because all of his lines are so quotable. I mean. It's a, it's weird to think, but this is like probably my most quotable movie uh, of all time, and all of them are Joker lines. Uh, there are a couple of good lines from Batman as well, but uh, yeah, it's just this movie's amazing, and and Heath Ledger's Joker performance is amazing, and none more so in, in this particular moment when you have Joker versus Batpod, and somehow Joker wins. Yeah, one of my favorite Joker lines is in that pencil scene when they're like, "So you think you could just steal from us, and walk away?" And he's just like, "Yeah." Like, I don't know why, but the, his delivery of that line is just perfect. Well, yeah. We also just, I can't believe we've gone through this yeah. entire podcast without talking about why so serious. That's criminal of us. Yeah, but well, pretty yeah, memorable. shout out to that as well. If we wanted to just requote the whole movie, we should have just played the whole audio of the of We the also didn't talk it. about hockey pads either, unfortunately. Yeah. Great. I'm not wearing hockey pads. Yeah. And on that note, guys, let's put a score on it. Jay, what are you giving this film out of 10? 10. All right. Cool. Moving on. Got... <laughs> Look, we, I've said it before. It doesn't have to be a perfect film to get a 10. I don't think The Dark Knight is a perfect film. It's pretty close. 10. Yeah. 10 for me as well. This is the first time that all three of us are giving a movie a 10 because Woo! Jay decided not to give a 10 to The Empire Strikes Back, but whatever. And uh, Scott Harvey decided not to give a... Well, I don't think he gave a 10 to The Prestige either. No, I didn't. No. I don't think so. Never mind. I just felt like calling out the fact that Scott Harvey still doesn't get The Prestige. That's fine. We all get The Dark Knight, though. And next week, we'll Maybe find out if we all... get me. <laughs> next week, we'll find out, however, if all of us get Inception because uh, that will do it for part six of the Nolan countdown. Please follow our podcast on Twitter at at media plug pod, subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out the podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. Our Patreon has a bunch of different reward tiers for you to check out and you can receive various rewards depending on how much you're willing or able to donate. We'd appreciate it so much if you contributed even at the $1 level. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. 
check it out for yourself. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, however, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd appreciate if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribed and shared. And with that, we really appreciate all of you for listening to part six of our Nolan Countdown miniseries. We're pushing two hours here, and that is entirely my fault because I love this movie too much. Don't forget to check out all of our other podcasts in the Some Like It Scott feed. Most of them are shorter than this one, including our latest episode of Some Like It Scott, as well as Champs Lunch. And we'll be back next week with part seven of the Nolan Countdown when the three of us will be revisiting Chris Nolan's dream within a dream within a dream within a film, Inception. <laughs>